The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. All right, if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them with me. The book of Philippians will be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be picking up here in just a moment toward the latter end of verse 11. Uh, the section that started this, which really goes back up into verse 5 of chapter 2. You'll remember many of the things I hope that we said about that, but we'll read through it nonetheless. Here Paul writes, By inspiration, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, the things that are in heaven, and the things that are of earth, and the things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Of course, this section goes all the way back into chapter 1 and verse 27, but carries itself at least through verse 11. And particularly there, verses 5 through 11 that we just read are one of those pinnacle passages, is the way I think about it at least, that really describe to us how important it was that Christ came to the earth and then more importantly for us, how important it was that Christ was willing to die on our behalf. And he did that because, as the text explains there, he was showing us his servanthood. He was showing us the fact that he was willing to serve us. And that's just a, an unbelievable thought, at least in my mind, to think about the God of heaven coming down as he did. Of course, I refer to him a lot of times as God in the body, but he comes down in human form. And then even in that... His sole purpose was to serve us and most importantly to die for us. And we know that is what we would refer to and the Bible does as well as the eternal purpose. And that's what was set forth here in the text. And as we were examining back on last week, maybe the week before as well, uh, this part of the text, particularly verses 9 and 10, described to us a name that was given by God to Jesus in order to highly exalt him. King James translation, which is about as accurate as we can understand it at least, to lift him up as high as he could be lifted. And then that name, it was in that name that every knee, verse 10 says, should bow. And of course, we may have related several things to that. I just hope that I continue to relate from me, in my mind at least, the fact that I'm either going to bow at the knee uh, bow a knee to Jesus now, or I'm going to bow a knee to Jesus in eternity. And if we do it now, obviously, then the hope that we have is salvation. If we try, and that's all you could do is try, it wouldn't be successful. But if we tried to wait to the end of this life or to the end of time as we know it, that's going to be too late. And so even though the world sometimes may you know, look to us as if we're some kind of uh, strange characters or, or weird people or something like that, when we continue to live our lives in such a way that not only through our mouths express the fact that we bow the knee to Jesus, but most importantly, I think the context we're about to get into really bears it out. If we're going to bear our lives out before God, 
We're going to do that through our actions as well. And of course, there are other texts that prove similar things, uh, not just the idea of Jesus, but the fact that we give ourselves up as living sacrifices, is what the, the Roman letter says, and that we give ourselves over in a such a way as to show our appreciation to God, even to have the ability to do that. And then in verse 11, is kind of where we're picking up and dropping off, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the glory of the Father. Now, I've looked and looked and looked, and, and I could still be looking and could still be wrong, but I've continued to come back to the King James Translation's usage here of the word that every knee should bow, or every tongue should confess the name of Jesus. How do we typically use the word should? Kind of, kind of the word should for us means it's, it's left as an option. You know, you would expect that if someone says, well, I should be able to stop by your house on the way home from services tonight, then you're going to look at that and you're going to say, well, I, I probably trust that Jim is going to do that, and I would assume he's going to do his best to try. But by using the word should, I'm also leaving available toward you the option that you leave the light on and it's going to be on at 6 o'clock in the morning because I'm never going to get by there. Now, hopefully I give you what we would call a heads up, let you know about that. But should typically carries the idea that something is left as an option. And there's no doubt about it that as far as this side of eternity, as far as we live on this earth, the fact is that every man does have a choice on whether or not, again, on this side of eternity, if he's going to bow the knee. He does have the option, in his mind at least, on this side of eternity, that he's going to confess the name of Jesus as Christ. He's got that option. But does that option really exist? In eternity, no. Once eternity turns, at the day of judgment, in some sense, in some form, every knee may as well have, if not that it does, will bow before their Lord, and every tongue will confess at judgment that He was Christ, uh, the Son of God that He said He was. And so I look at that word, and again, I even went, uh, it's been... Almost a year ago, Ronnie and I had a conversation, and I forgot it at the time, but I'm remembering it finally now. Ronnie and I had a conversation that a lot of times is a tool that he'll use to study, and I do the same. Perhaps you do, particularly because we have digital copies now. If you're studying a text and you've got a question about it, the easiest thing you can do if you've got access to other translations is to pull some of those translations out and say, okay, well, the King James says this, the New King James says this, the ASB says this, and, and you can go through and make just on the surface there a comparative study, and generally you can look at different and various texts, and you can say, well, out of the five that I looked at, three of the five say something of this sort, and so maybe that's the case that it's a little bit closer to that thought than this. And they don't, won't always be, as far as the east is from the west, there won't always be a black and white difference between them. Sometimes they'll be kind of blurred and grayed, and you'll say, well, King James words it this way, but I understand what they meant, and I read it in the NASB, and it, it words it this way, and I understand that too, and they sort of kind of mean the same thing, and that's probably true the majority of the time. But I said that to say this, I looked as far as I could look, I think, and continue to dig, and even online, you can pull up hundreds of translations. And I kept going through and going through and going through and trying to find a translation 
that took the opportunity to change the word should to anything else, I don't think I found it. And what I'm getting at is in my opinion, this is my judgment, my opinion, but I think when you look at the whole picture, taking it out of time stake and taking it from time stake as we know it and moving it into eternity, this word should doesn't exactly fit the bill. Now, not that we use the word every day and it's old King James English to say such, but if we want to say it more eternally correctly, maybe, just maybe, we should read this or understand it at least to say this and, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Matter of fact, there's a beautiful song that you can find that sang a lot of times and it's exactly from this text. And as far as the way it's sang, it's basically a quotation from this text and the title of the song, uh, not even strangely uh, to understand this, and every knee shall bow. It's a beautiful song. Now, it could be wrong or it could be right. It could be biblical. It could be non-biblical, whatever. In this case, I think as far as the thought goes, it's, it's going to be pretty consistent. That on eternity's side, eventually, by judgment, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And there's really not a given option for that. Now, again, we have our choice. And in some sense, we might have an option here on eternity but at the end of the day, as I kind of stated a little bit earlier, I'll either bow now, I'll either confess now, or I'll have to do it in eternity, and by then it'll be too late. Just think about as a comparison, not, not the same thing being taught nonetheless, but think about it as a comparison, the way that you've known and understood and maybe memorized John 3.16. How do we typically, uh, if we've memorized that, the majority of us, how have we memorized that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what's the next word? Should or shall? Shall is, is the thought right there. Whosoever, I can't even think of the verse. That's about the worst as it gets. Yes, sir. Believe in him should not perish. Whoever is baptized believes in him should not perish. Um, that's about as uh, awful as it could get. I'm going to have to turn back and look at it. <laughs> this never happens to none of y'all, but I get to stand up here and uh, try to make a point and make a fool out of myself instead. I'm going to look straight at it the way I've always understood it at least. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have it to everlasting life. Is there an option in that verse? It's not a parallel. I said it's not a parallel. Is there an option in that verse? There's an option in that. You can confess him or you cannot. You can be baptized in him or you cannot. But the idea in that verse, or at least the, the contextual idea, seems to be that the will of God is to do what? That everyone will be. And in eternity, God's not going to force anyone to be baptized, but in eternity, whether it be for the good or the bad, every tongue and every knee shall bow, or will bow, maybe is another way of saying that. But that's just kind of a little bit of thought. And every tongue should confess or shall or will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Watch this last phrase here. To the glory of God 
the Father. So why would be, why would God desire or require someone to bow and confess the name of our Lord? It's for His glory. And you've heard about those and you've read about those in history, those who we would refer to as martyrs, and how that many of those people reportedly, and of course the story varies depending on you know, who it was and when it was and such, but many of those when they were being called before the magistrates or called before the masses and they were being commanded by men, and that's the key to this, by men, that they would denounce the name of Christ and turn their back on Jesus and such, many of them supposedly according to history died doing what? Confessing his name. And continuing to say, no, <laughs> you know, burn me the stake, you know, whatever it is, crucify me, what it, all these different options there for killing. Go ahead and do that. But I'm still going to stand with God. Still going to stand with Jesus. And that's what we should do. Why? Because of verses 5 through 10, we get to that point there in verses 11 and so forth. Now, next section, verses 12 and following, and I say 12 and following because I've changed, and uh, I, I don't know if I should change, but I've changed my perspective and my opinion of this in the last 48 hours. I don't know how, you know, I'm sure that you study your Bible often, and when you do that, that there are, for the majority of time, I think, when we study our Bibles, and even when we're trying to really dig if you're like I am, you'll go through and you're pretty much, for the most part, you'll see the same things in the text every time you read it. Now, I'm certain that there are words that jump off the page. Certainly there are situations in our lives, you know, where you'll read one text today and it's like, eh, that's, that's not a big deal today. And then you'll be in need or you'll be struggling or, you know, something else come up. You'll read that another time. You'll be like, wow, that's, I mean, that's just what I needed in my life today. And you'll have those moments. And for the majority of the time, I think, though, at least myself, Pretty consistent, this is what it is. You know, may learn a few thoughts, few ideas, but won't change a lot. But on this, I've honestly, and I don't even have those outlines I gave out weeks ago. I finally took them out of my Bible this, this afternoon, but uh, I don't know how I divided it there is what I'm saying. But I look at this now, and I was of the, of the thought process at least that verses 12 through 16 make up the next you could call it the literary unit. You could also call it the paragraph. And if some of you have got headings in your Bible, uh, this copy that I have doesn't have headings. Uh, personally, I don't use the headings very often. I don't use the center column reference, probably to my own demise, but don't necessarily do that. But if you've got headings in your Bible, how are some of your Bibles maybe headed up? Do you have a heading that comes before verse 12? Anything like that? Or maybe a heading that comes before verse, uh, in this case, I would say probably before verse 14. Maybe there's no heading there at all. Where, if you do have headings, where does a heading come in? Anywhere in chapter 2. Okay, so we got somebody, verse 12 says, shine as lights to the world. Anything ends in 18? Right, and there definitely that's a second secondary subject there when he changes to talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and such. But whether you have headings or not, of course, those weren't inspired anyway. But I looked at this text for uh, as much as I've studied it or tried to study it, seeing basically verses 12 through 17 being some kind of unit. I still agree with that. 
But I'm struggling in my mind to think that maybe there's a little bit of divide between verses 12 and 13 that go together and then 14 to 17. Now, are they related? Yes. And because I've tried to, to assist myself and, and share with you that a lot of this text we've read already through chapter 1, studied through chapter 1 and chapter 2, that there are sentences, there are paragraphs, uh, there are sections, there are topics, you might say it some of those ways, that do divide up. At the same time, this is one letter being inspired by one God. And so even though he may address different things through the pen of Paul, at the end of the day, what is God's main purpose for writing any New Testament letter? It's somehow going to involve him. It's somehow probably going to involve Christ, and it's more than likely going to involve, in some sense, salvation or at least living the Christian life. And probably the majority of the New Testament letters, and I'm not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those gospel accounts, but the majority of the New Testament letters are going to come down to the, the living the Christian life that is a result of having already appreciated or taken note of the fact that Christ lived and died and that we're obedient to Him. In this section, I'm certain, through continuing to look at it, that that's... Not, not only what Paul's writing about, but more importantly behind that is what God's purposed in this. And so Paul says, verses 5, again through inspiration, but verses 5 through 11, he says, look, here is your ultimate example of humanity, uh, a deity taking on humanity and proving humility. And, and as a result of that, more of the context back into chapter 1 and verse 27 showing us an example of what unity should be like and how that we continue to come back to Christ and look at Christ as that ultimate example of what humility looks like and what it pictures, what servitude looks like. So just read with me verse 12 and 13 and then we'll break out and read some more in just a moment and go back to it. Verse 12, we see our first word, King James text, wherefore. Some would say, therefore. Same idea, which means we're about to balance something off what was just said. So, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we mistakenly do in the world and I mean by that the loosely religious world would do, what could be drawn out of that verse? If you knew nothing else about it, then it's the way, sometimes people do know a lot else other than that, but when they read that phrase, especially the latter one there, work out your own salvation. What's their immediate take on that? You do what you need to do. You understand God the way that you understand Him. And you interpret things the way you want, and then salvation's coming anyway. And if they don't say that, oftentimes, and we're, we're guilty of the same, we can live like that. You know, that I, I'm just going to do as much good as I can, I'm just going to be a good person, or they would sometimes refer to themselves, or we might say about someone, well, they're just a good Christian, good Christian man, good Christian woman. And so I, I couldn't imagine them not being in heaven. Well, I would... Hope in those situations, they will be in it, obviously. But the truth of things are that 
if you take the world as a whole and then you draw it down to the quote-unquote religious world and then you draw it down to the real instance of it and that is the Lord's church, will everyone stand in heaven? We have to say no, unfortunately not. And, and Jesus in his statements and, and things that he said, particularly I think about what he said during the Sermon on the Mount, few, that is smaller number, fewer at least, they be that find it. And he's talking about the narrow way, the way to get to heaven. Straight as the gate, broad as the way. It's, it's easy to get anywhere else. You know, if, I, if, if your instruction, if your desire was to go on a vacation and you made no plan, you know, gave yourself no itinerary, we don't ever use that word in Mumford, but I just thought about it, you know, no time frame, Nothing, and you just said, I'm going on vacation. Where are you going? Don't know. When are you going? I probably leave in the morning. When you come back, not sure. You can get anywhere. I mean, particularly today, I mean, when you drive to your car, you run to the edge, you catch a plane, catch a boat, go somewhere else. You can end up circling around, go around for a long time, wander all over. But if you decide in your mind that, look, I'm going on vacation. And I'm going to Talladega, Alabama. Now, not too many from Mumford has ever done that, but I can think one man went on his honeymoon in Talladega, got married right up here. Don't know why. He did it. McKeague Motel. Uh, but, you know, if you say I'm going to Talladega on vacation, what are you going to have to do? To some extent, you, I mean, you say, well, I'll go down, you know, I'll go down to McKeldry and turn off on, twi on the Twin Churches and I'll cut across the... Chenobi and I'll go back up Stockdale. You, I get all that. But in general, what direction do you have to go? Pretty much southwest. Poor Talladega. Now, if you may stumble and fall off and you may have to take a side road, but you're going to have to point yourself at least for the goal of it to get there. Paul says right here, being inspired to do it, wherefore, my beloved brethren. Now, I like the way Paul is always uh, kind, persuasive, and soft, even when he's got to really jerk something out of people. Of course, he doesn't do that as much in the Philippian letters. He does say, for example, to the Corinthians uh, in either one of those letters, particularly the first one. But he's always kind and gentle, and he says, wherefore, my beloved you could say about that, wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed. So what's he giving them right out of the gate? They have been obedient. They know what obedience is. They practice it before. As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So Paul and again, I've lived this, not uh, salvation side, but I've lived it in the employer versus employee realm before. And I've told you before, I've had employees in the past, when I was in the cabinet business particularly, that, you know, they, they were great workers if you were around. Not so much if you got around the corner or out of their presence. Does that illustration measure up to our relationship to God? Forget that work illustration. Forget what Paul's literally talking about. Does that measure up to God? Can I, do, can I do 
perfectly, not perfectly, but can I do my absolute best when God is watching and not when he's not? No, because he's always watching. <laughs> There's never a time I can say, well, God, you know, God's out of sight and you know, he, he got his back turned and he's busy with something. No. So constantly, but Paul urges them, you know what, whether I'm there with you or whether I'm not, and he's trying to get back there, trying to get there. He's trying to get out of prison, trying to get there. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Can we earn salvation through good works? No, we know that. And even though the world misunderstands, the religious world misunderstands, Ephesians 2, 8, well, they say 8 and 9. They ought to be reading Ephesians 2, really 1 through 10, at least. But although they misunderstand that, we ultimately must be obedient to God. And whatever that is, whenever that is, we must be obedient to God. That's, that's absolutely true. And if you, didn't, you couldn't hear that comment, you probably couldn't in the back. We're all responsible for our own salvation. Can't go on what mom and daddy did or grandma did or, or what my children, you know, you have to, you work out. In that sense, you work out your own salvation. Now, the term here, and there's been several up the page that we looked at, and I always point over to Coach Stevens when we get to one of these types of terms, the terms here, work out, is actually in Paul's day was a, a Greek word that carried with it a mathematical type of connotation. Meaning you've got to put one plus two to get three. You've got to add these things up. You've got to get yourself lined up because ultimately you have to get the, to the conclusion. Literally here, you've got to get to the finish. And although we're not saved in the, the sense of it by our own personal good works. Now I get, and we're not arguing the fact of, you know, what is faith, the work, the repentance, all that. But I'm not saved by my own good works. There's one thing that's certain. If I'm saved, I will work. Now, now we live in a, in a time, and, and we certainly need to be uh, making sure the world is aware of it, we need to remind ourselves that yes, we've got to get to salvation. And we've got to do that according to God's plan, according to what He lays out in Scripture. And as we time, uh, every time we meet, to some extent, letter that out, you know, the, the hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We try to remember to ourselves that's not the end of it, that's, a, that's the beginning, that, that's the commanded beginning. But what goes with that? And usually if we name the six, and what will we refer to that as? Remaining faithful. And remaining faithful includes much, but includes within that much the fact that we do the work of the Lord and that we work contextually back up the page as servants. Yes, sir.
exactly right. And is it as aggravating it is as it is, and they're doing this more if you continue the math illustration with what was, I think we're calling Common Core, one of the things they're asking the kids to do, show your work, show your work. And you know, you probably had students in school that they seemed like they were acing every test, but if you ever stopped them and said, how about get up and do that one on the board, something that suddenly a lump come up in their throat, you know. You gotta know how to go about that. We gotta continue to do that. A reference that you could put that's uh, close kin to not just this, but the next verse that ties with it, Ephesians 2, and uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. We're saved unto good works, or so that we can continue to do good works. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear not from the aspects, as I would refer to it, as shaking in our boots. What does biblical Old Testament fear look like? and we respect God and we respect his plan and we respect his pattern and we respect the fact that we work on his behalf and I think that goes back up to the glory of the Father from verse 11 as well we confess this name that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father the same now verse 13 for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure this is why I've been a little stumbly the last 48 hours in looking at verses 12 and 13. They make up something in the English language referred to as a paradox. Anybody know what a paradox is? You may or may not. I didn't know till a few hours ago. <laughs> it's kind of the idea of back opposites of butt heads. So, so verse 12 says, and you just take it on the surface. We're only taking the surface of this. Work out your own salvation. Okay, you got to do something. Verse 13 says, hold up, wait a minute. Uh, let God work it out. Who's working? Which one's right? 12 or 13? Yes, both of them. Both of them are right. Uh, just as you could take someone, and many times the religious world loosely again use this, they'll be reading along, reading along, and they'll get down to uh, Romans 10 and verse 13. Anybody recall what that scripture says? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, what is the end of the result? Shall be saved. Well, there you go. That's it. That's the solution. That's, the, that's it. We call on the name of the Lord. And of course, that could be, according to them at least, just vocalize that, Lord, I need you. I've I got to have your help. I need your salvation. Is that all of it? No, even the context of that uh, there in Romans 10, if you'll read the whole context, you can just about completely find all what we know about salvation in the context, and it goes beyond verse 13. And he will. In Acts 22, 16, he exactly will. The same, same thought, same process. Uh, he called on the name of the Lord, which was expressive of the fact he was obedient. And then you think about the words of Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Is that contradiction to Romans 10, 13? No. Which one's right? Both. Both. And it's dependent for that case, salvation-wise, upon you know, where someone was, what they needed to know, and how far along they had gotten along the you know, path toward heaven. 
It's our salvation. But he says here, verse 13, For it is God which worketh, and I've circled the word in, which worketh in you both, and then I've underlined with as many underlined as I could fit between the lines, and to will and to do of his good pleasure. The word his is italicized, so really to do his good pleasure. So God is going to be able to do what he's desired to do, what his pleasure is to do. And he's going to do that in us, and that's his will. But his will isn't forgotten from verse 12. That we are to be working out, doing for ourselves our part in, to in going towards salvation. But it's of his good pleasure. Yes, sir. Exactly. So, who sets the conditions? God does. So, as His will, He sets the conditions as His will. If you obey His conditions, that's your will submitting to His will. That's right. That's right. These conditions, part of the work, are the conditions that God has set in place. Now, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, if there's a verse in the text that when I first read it, I thought, dude, huh? What? You know, is Paul just kind of taking a shot at them because they've been a little argumentative, you know, in the middle to the latter part of chapter 1, and that there are some, those that have come in that, you know, are, are trying to harm him or, or hurt his work because he's in prison. Now, I think it's more important to the fact of, God's will and God's work is His will. And we do His will in His work. As it was just stated there. And we do it without murmuring. And without dispute. You know, I, I know several times in your life you probably sat down to have what we call the personal Bible study with someone. And one of the things that you had better lay out, no matter what, is to sit down with that person. And, and I, you know, as methods are taught, methods are just methods. They're just that, but... As I was taught, you know, to sit down and study with someone, you're trying to establish with them the authority of the Bible. And one of the things you'll do is kind of with a lead-in question, you know, whatever we study, and they, maybe they're blind to what's about to happen, you know, whatever it is we find in this book, would you be willing to do it? Is this God's Word? Yes, God's Word. Is it inspired of God? Yes. And we probably have already looked at some scriptures that show such. Okay, would you be willing to do that? And I know I've had written you know, written Bible studies where they've got something to keep, you know, between the studies and all. And a lot of times there'll be just that question right there. Whatever we find in here, will you be willing to do it? And then you'll get into, you know, three or four studies down the road and you get to some issues and they're like, I don't know about all that. Well, you said, if we find it in here, you do it. Now, was that true or, or what? And, and hopefully you can get the person to say, well, you know, I did say that. And I, I, yeah, I guess we will. I guess I'm going to have to do what this says. And we do that, and we should do that without murmuring, without disputings, that you may be blameless. Now, here's a verse that'll take your, that's a step back. That you may be blameless and harmless, sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine 
is lights of the world. So the call that he's bringing here is we've got Jesus, verse 5 through 11, humbled himself, even though he was exalted, humbled himself as a servant, gave us that example of what servitude looked like. God then in turn, even though he died on a cross, lifted him up and highly exalted him in giving him a name that is above every name, whether you believe that to be Jesus. In my case, I think it points more toward the fact that Jesus was made Lord, L-O-R-D, Lord. But this is what Jesus did. This is what God did on behalf of Jesus, what God situated him to be. The Lord of everything. Salvation. And Paul says right behind that, you've got to obey. You've got to obey in presence or in absence. And that is done without murmurings and without disputings. And you've got to do the work. I just skipped a verse there. But you've got to do the work that God has willed for you to do without murmurs and disputings. And when that is occurring, we can be found. Not that we are on our own. But we can be found because of what Jesus did, because of his death, to be blameless and harmless and without rebuke. What does it mean to be blameless? It's, conti it's continued, yes, always. Yes, and really all three of these words we're fixing to bring out are very similar. Blameless, you said something I, I was hearing two people. Nothing to be charged. I, I've heard it defined before as nothing will stick. You know, it's like a really good, I, there's, there's so much technology past this, but I remember my mama got a set of, of uh, I almost said Tupperware, it ain't Tupperware. Cookware, one time, T-Fall. I tell you what, I don't know how good it was supposed to be, but I've still got some T-Fall pans. I fry two eggs for Cameron every night in a T-Fall pan. I couldn't tell you how old the thing is. Non-stick. You know, you can throw accusation, we're pulling it back over. You can throw accusation at someone, you know, he's a lure down, dirty scandal and all this, and of course Satan's ready to do that. He's called what? The accuser of the brethren. He's going to make accusation. Humans do too. But it doesn't stick. You ever heard anything about someone and they'll say, they'll tell you something. It's, you know, it's gossip and rumor and all that stuff. And, and the moment they say it, you say, that's crazy. That ain't right. He wouldn't do that. And hopefully that's true. But I mean, you, you, you don't believe some of the stuff. Sometimes things stick, but hopefully as a Christian, that would be a very rare if ever case. Blameless. Uh, without defeat is another way of saying that. Something where criticism doesn't hang. The next one here, harmless. Harmless. Uh, do you have another translation that says something different? I didn't look. Blameless and harmless. Sincere is a, is a really good idea. It's a really good idea there. Uh, harmless is not, you know, you know, I, I never believe this, but sometimes somebody will find a snake in their yard and all the neighbors say, don't worry about it, he's harmless. He's, he can be hard. He can harm me, you know. Coming to join you, Elizabeth. But harmless here is the idea of being unmixed 
or sincere. We'll come back to that next week. We didn't make near the headway I thought I was about to, but we'll come back in the middle of that next week. Thank you for your time.